There was a pastor one time who was asked to speak on the subject of sex to a group of women. And uh, he kind of sheepishly agreed to do it. He was working on the message and his wife walked in and asked what he was doing. And he says, well, I've been asked to speak to a women's group. She says, oh, great. What topic are you going to be discussing? And he said, well, they asked me to discuss the subject of uh, sailing. And so uh, the wife walks out and thinking, well, that's odd, sailing. Well, he does the speaking and the next week the wife bumps into one of the ladies that went to this event. And uh, this lady tells the wife, your husband is so, uh, such a good speaker, he knows so much about that subject. And she kind of looked puzzled and said, oh, really? She said, well, he's only done it twice. The first time he fell off and the second time he got so sick he vowed he'd never do it again. <laughs> but I kind of share that pastor's sheepishness about a subject today. And if this is your first time here, we don't talk about this every week. So don't think that, uh, you know, that you think this well, is the best church I've ever been to. Uh, this is a subject that I feel like we need to address because so many uh, churches won't address the issue, though it's right here in the Scripture. I think it's important we discuss the issue of sexuality because our culture really has no problem discussing it. Howard Stern was describing his new show that was going to air on CBS, and this is what he said, quote, "...television has changed." Standards have gone to an all-time low, and I'm here to represent that. It's a miracle. I prayed to God for this. We'll have sex and nudity, and lesbians will interview wackos from all walks of life. Howard Stern. Not a surprising statement coming from him. Years ago, when Hugh Hefner's magazine was just coming out, he was in a debate to try to justify the magazine coming into existence, obviously, because it was the first of its kind at that time. And he brought uh, to the debate the issue or the alleged account of a husband, a Puritan husband, who brought his wife to the city fathers for trial. And the complaint against his wife was that he said the, the night prior to that, uh, during intimacy... He said, I distinctly saw my wife smile. She was enjoying it, evidently, and this was a no-no. And so she was penalized accordingly. And so Hefner looks at that, and he, he says that his magazine is essentially a great sexual liberation to a puritanized society that is prude. Well, I don't know, regardless of what the Puritans, I think they've been stereotyped, Incorrectly, and you certainly want to take what Hefner says about as far as you can throw it behind you. But our standard for sexuality is not Hugh Hefner, it's not Howard Stern, it's not Dr. Ruth, it's not you or me, it's not Cosmopolitan Magazine. You catch a glimpse of the cover of it this month, you'll be especially appalled of what it promises. That is not the standard. The standard is heaven. Sex was God's idea. It was not our idea. There is no revolution needed if we will simply apply what the scripture says. 
But my friends, the Christian position on sexuality is going out the window by default because too many of us are ashamed to discuss what God was not ashamed to create. And furthermore, what God is not ashamed to discuss in the Scriptures. Let's look together in the Song of Solomon, chapter 3, is where we will start. When you come to a portion of Scripture like this, I kind of get the feeling that I'm looking at a movie. And the movies, when I see a love scene in the movies, it always makes me uncomfortable, because I never like looking at that kind of stuff. Because it, I feel like it's none of my business. And I'm uncomfortable looking at somebody else doing that. And you come to this portion of Scripture, I get that same feeling. And if it not, were not for Scripture, I would be real uncomfortable looking at it, certainly much more uncomfortable talking about it in front of you. But because it is Scripture, it is, like all Scripture, God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness for the purpose that we might be equipped for every good work, as we're told in the New Testament. Now we're going to look today at the, both the wedding and the wedding night. The wedding is first, which is appropriate. In chapter 3, starting in verse 6, we have for the first time today Solomon's bride called a bride. He's going to call her several times, my sister, my bride. So let's pick up where we've left off, chapter 3, verse 6. She says, What is this coming up from the wilderness, like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all scented powders of the merchant? Behold, it is the traveling couch of Solomon. Sixty mighty men around it, of all the mighty men of Israel. All of them are wielders of the sword, expert in war. Each man has his sword at his side, guarding against the terrors of the night. King Solomon has made for himself a sedan chair. From the timber of Lebanon he made its posts of silver, its back of gold, and its seat of purple fabric, with its interior lovingly fitted out by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and gaze on King Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding and on the day of his gladness of heart. Now I've read the most I've ever heard of are 12 groomsmen. That's a lot, isn't it? Solomon's got 60 all around this great traveling couch. Now, obviously, the Jewish culture is much different than ours. What we'll do is we'll get together for about three-hour celebration. Somebody gets married and everybody goes home and that's it. The Jews, what they would do is they'd celebrate for a week. And the week would start with a procession in some sense like this. And Solomon has really given her, literally, the royal treatment. This traveling couch he has had made for her. Look at all the rich materials he has used. And as a wise man will, he asked a woman's opinion about its design. The inside was fitted out by the daughters of Jerusalem. And he would send and had his bride brought to him. <coughs> Excuse me. And what would happen after that is the husband would go and get his bride and bring her to his house there in front of the elders. He would take his bride into the house and they were essentially married. Pretty much across the threshold idea. Okay, so now in chapter 4 we have the across the threshold has happened. 
and Solomon begins to express now his love for his wife, his bride. And in the first verse he says, he says to her, How beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilead. You try that next time, guys, on your date. <clears throat> Tell her, your hair looks like a flock of goats. You know, actually, there was a guy that rode on an airplane and told the stewardess, said, Miss, your hair looks like a flock of goats. <coughs> and he said that she didn't talk to him the whole rest of the flight. But actually, this is quite a compliment in that culture, as we can assume it is. Um, when a flock would come down and would descend, they would, uh, the, the evening sun would shine on them, and their coat would be very, um, would be very shiny, and of course it would be a very beautiful thing, you know, for the whole flock to come down like that. And he begins with her eyes, and we're going to see <clears throat> Solomon does what he has not been, since propriety has not allowed him to do prior to this, at the very first, we saw that he said, "A beautiful you are, my darling, your eyes are like doves. He said that before. But now he goes on, and he goes. He starts at the eyes, and now he talks about the hair, and now he's going to go down and describe in detail every part of her body. And look at this, and with what discretion and romanticism he does. Verse 2, Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes which have come up from their washing. All of which bear twins, and not one of one among them has lost her young. It's a great compliment back then to have all your teeth. You know, here it's kind of a joke, and we snicker. But back then it was a great compliment. The, the NIV gives us more of the sense of that. It says, not one of them is missing. Not one of them has lost her young. They've come up, they all bear twins. In other words, they're all uniform, they're white, they're clean. He says in verse 3, your lips are like a scarlet thread, your mouth is lovely. <clears throat> your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the tower of David built with rows of stones on which are hung a thousand shields, all around the shields of the mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Now, some of these are kind of unusual descriptions. Brian and I had a kind of a fun time with that last one trying to de decide why it is that uh, breasts are like two fawns feeding on lilies. And I won't tell you some of the things we came up with, but I think that uh, the truth of it, what he's saying is, for one, the color is one thing. Uh, the gazelle is obviously a different color than a lily. Lily's white, gazelle's brown. The contrast in the color. But I think another thing is when you have the, when you go to a petting zoo, okay, this is something we can all relate to. What do you want to do? Obviously, why you're there is to pet the pretty little fawns. They are very inviting to do so. Uh, they're soft, they're, they're frail, and they are uh, unusual to someone perhaps that has never seen uh, little bitty fawns before. And so you want to caress it. And obviously that's what Solomon's talking about. Last time I went to a petting zoo, though, one of these little darlings stole my sandwich. <clears throat> so that's probably not the idea here. I have a friend who was an elder at a church who went uh, to Russia, had a Russian interpreter who was a woman. When he got back, the interpreter wrote a letter to him 
And he read this letter to me, and I just got a kick out of it, because you know, the translations often, you don't get quite the sense of the meaning of the word. And, and she wrote in there, and she said to this man, uh, quote, it was very interesting intercourse we shared. Well, if you don't get the joke, it's because you only have one definition for intercourse. I, I kind of wanted to look again, what are those qualifications for elder? One more time. If you saw Tim Allen's movie uh, For Richer For Poor, you may remember a scene where he comes up out of this swamp <clears throat> into this Amish community. You remember the name of the town that he came to? It was intercourse. I mean, it's talking about talking. That's another definition for that word. And that is a definition that our culture has all but stripped away from that word. It's a very legitimate definition. Obviously, this Russian lady you know, use some dictionary or something and got that definition, it's very appropriate, but for our culture, <clears throat> our culture has all but stripped away any meaning from that word but the physical act. In fact, that's the number one complaint of wives of their husbands if they have done essentially the same thing with that word. It's stripped away the other nuance of verbal conversation and have reduced their sexual activity to simply uh, the physical. But you don't see that here with Solomon, do you? Once he gets her in the house, he doesn't go straight for the kill. He talks to her. And notice how he talks to her. How beautiful you are, my darling. He begins to compliment and focus on her. The average woman, in case, men, you haven't figured this out yet, and it's okay if you haven't, it takes us a while to get this figured out, is different than you. She is aroused by her mind. That is her greatest sexual organ, is her mind. She is much more aroused by feelings of affection and conversation than she is by the physical like you are. So here's a good principle for the husbands among you, or husbands-to-be perhaps. Now the husbands, don't you go thinking about this yet, husbands-to-be. How can I initiate romantic conversation? <clears throat> Something we don't think about that much. Romantic conversation, as Solomon gives us the example, focuses on her. And notice it's all positive. And he does a lot of talking before chapter 5. And that's when uh, this marriage is consummated. All of chapter 4, except the very last verse, is Solomon talking in romantic conversation to his bride. Most men are amazed at how long it takes a woman to warm up, so to speak. And conversely, most women are amazed at how long, it, uh, how quickly it takes a man. He's ready. Doesn't take him any time. Boom. It's a done deal. Uh, I saw a book one time that says sex begins in the kitchen. <clears throat> now that is not a creative suggestion. That is more of an attitude, as Willard Harley says, quote, affection is the environment of the marriage. It is to be happening all the time. Affection is the environment of the marriage. Sex is the special event. I love the way Gary Oliver, he is a Denver psychologist, in five words he says, he gives so much wisdom, he says, all of life is foreplay. From a woman's perspective, all of life is foreplay. So if in the busyness of your life, you have allowed the busyness to undermine conversation, then I, without even peeking into your bedroom, can tell you 
that you have also allowed it to undermine your physical relationship. Because for a woman, one goes with the other. And Solomon knows this. And he spends a lot of time focusing on her. He talks about her, complimenting her, and giving romantic conversation. Notice what else he does in verse 6. It says, Until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling, and there is no blemish in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. May you come with me from Lebanon. Journey down from the summit of Amana, from the summit of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. What is he talking about here? Well, if you may remember in verse 6, last week she made a very similar statement. If you look back to chapter 2, verse 17, she says, until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away, she tells him, turn. In other words, remember, go away and be like a gazelle on the mountains that separate us. Now he turns around and uses that same statement and says, now I'm going to be, in some sense, like a gazelle. Come with me to the mountain, not of separation, but of pleasure. Mountain of myrrh and frankincense. And when he says, come with me from Lebanon, she was from Lebanon. Well, that was what the whole entourage at the end of chapter 3 was about. So what does he mean when he says, come with me from Lebanon? Well, I think he's speaking figuratively because he also says to come down from the dens of lions and mountains of leopards. And I don't know that many women that spend their time in lion's dens. I think he is speaking figuratively of a place where she's thinking, come with me away from lion's dens, perhaps representing fear, uh, Lebanon, perhaps representing a place she's just come from. But in, in a sense, he is saying, uh, come with me in your thoughts. Focus on where we are. Come from Lebanon, come from the lion's den, come from fear to a place of pleasure. So husbands, here is another great principle that we can derive from what Solomon tells us. That is, ask this question, how can I provide a freedom from distractions? <clears throat> See, now, why in the world is that a relevant question? Well, I'll tell you. Because women think differently than men. If you were to think of a man's mind as a house, you would walk in and you would see many rooms. You would walk in in the entryway, and, for example, a man's mind has got rooms, it's got compartments, it's got different modes. All right? And let me give you an example. You wake up in the morning as a man, and what you'll be thinking is, all right, shower. That is my goal. Get up, you shower. That goal is accomplished. Next, commute. That is my goal. You've conquered the commuting. You go to work. Now, you are so focused on work, it is easy to not be distracted as a man. Saturdays, you come, you mow. Now you're in lawn boy mode. There is no distraction. Don't bother me with anything. I'm mowing the yard. That is the way we think, isn't it? We think in the forms of rooms. And when it comes to sexuality, we don't have a problem focusing, okay? That sexuality room, there's not a problem focusing. But if you were to walk into the mind of a woman, you don't see rooms, you see a big gymnasium. Well, you've got to solve the same elements there, but they're all swimming around doing the same thing at the same time. 
Her mind can be thinking about finances. Her mind can be thinking about the kids, about the PTA, about the church meeting, about five different things at once, including sexuality. It's not unusual at all for a woman to be thinking about all these different things during an intimate time with her husband. And so I take it that Solomon, knowing this, is saying, come away from all these other thoughts and focus on us. And when she does focus, how does that affect her participation here? Well, look at verse 9. Ladies, or particularly wives, now it's your turn. Notice what gets Solomon going now that she has focused. Verse 9, he says, You have made my heart beat faster, my sister, my bride. You have made my heart beat faster with a single glance of your eyes, with a single strand of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine, and the fragrance of your oils than all kinds of spices. Your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Woo! You can get more from these three verses than you can from Dr. Ruth and Cosmopolitan's This Month issue. Some time ago, I received an email on how to satisfy a woman and how to satisfy a man. And I read that and I thought, you know what, that is accurate. And I'd like to read this to you. This is what a man can do every time to satisfy a woman. You ready? Caress. Praise. Pamper. Relish. Savor. Massage, make plans for, empathize, serenade, compliment, support, feed, tantalize, humor, placate, console, or console, sorry, it's not an automobile, console, hug, coddle, pacify, protect, phone, correspond, anticipate, nuzzle, smooch, minister to, forgive, sacrifice for, accessorize, go away, come back, go away again, come back again, beseech, entertain, charm, oblige, attend, implore, shave, trust, grovel, defend, coax, clothe, brag about, acquiesce, help, knowledge, polish, uh, spoil, embrace, accept, butter up, hear, understand, beg, plead, respect, entertain, kill for, die for, pine for, dream of, promise, deliver, tease, flirt, Commit, snuggle, elevate, serve, rub, date, scuttle like a crab on the ocean floor of her existence. Uh, indulge, wow, dazzle, amaze, flabbergast, enchant, idolize, and worship. And then go back and do it again. Now, would that work? <clears throat> Every time? It would. Alright? It would. How to satisfy a woman. There you go, man. Alright? How to satisfy a man. Are you ready, ladies? Show up naked. That's it. That's the entire list. But you know what? That is just as accurate. <laughs> Ladies, here's a question for you to ask and answer. How can I provide a visual and a physical incentive? That is exactly what she does here in these verses 9 through 11. Let's look at them. What made his heart beat faster? A single glance from her eyes. 
You know what kind of look I'm talking about? I'm not talking about that look when you're mad at him that you could carve his liver. I'm talking about the other look on the end of the spectrum that you just have to give him that one glance and he knows exactly what you're thinking. I remember the first time I got this look, Kathy and I hadn't been married 10 minutes. We were on in my Firebird V8, by the way, on the way down to uh, the Adolphus in Dallas. And I remember looking over and she gave me that look. And the next thing I knew, I looked down, I was going 85 miles an hour. Whoa! We were headed down there. The HOV, HOV lane was not yet in existence, but I tell you what, we made it there fast. A single glance from the eyes. And what do you think he means when he says, your lips drip honey, and honey and milk are under your tongue? Obviously, speaking figuratively, there's not honey and milk under the tongue. That'd be disgusting. He's saying that it's sweet underneath there. What's the only way that you can figure out that it's sweet underneath there? Obviously, you know what he's talking about. Craig Glickman is the guy that made the great observation. He said that historians are wrong when they think that this kind of kissing originated in France. It was in Israel 3,000 years ago. We've got that right here in the Song of Solomon. And then he makes the statement at the very end, fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Now ask, answer this question. How can he be praising, or how can he be seeing and praising her naked body if she's got garments on? Answer, she's been to Victoria's Secret. She's clothed, but then she isn't. It's right there. I'm not making this up. She's wearing garments, and yet he can see her body. In fact, next couple of verses, uh, we see that he sees the whole picture. There's no other way he could see her naked body and also have garments on, except that it was a very skimpy thing. So ladies, wives, I really need to <laughs> focus that statement. The best way to get the husband happening, provide that visual and physical incentive. How can you do that? Well, you can give him that look. You can wear the scented garment, as we've described here. And you can give him that kiss with milk and honey. He'll be putty in your hands. And now look at what Solomon describes in verse 12 through 15. As it shifts into fifth gear here. He says, A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A rock garden locked. A spring sealed up. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, henna with nard plants, Nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes along with all the finest spices. You are a garden spring, a well of fresh water and streams flowing from Lebanon. Solomon is here describing the most private, intimate part of his wife's body. And he refers to it as a garden, a garden of spices. This is the original and true Spice Girl, you might say. But this is done with purity, and this is done 
as it is intended to be done. Notice that she is called particularly this area, a garden locked. A rock garden, meaning that it has a rock wall around it to keep intruders out. He is praising here her virginity. And when he also refers to her as a spring sealed up, it's the same idea. Whenever a shepherd or uh, someone would have a well and they wanted to keep impurities out or they wanted to keep somebody else out that wasn't supposed to be in that well, they would take it and they would cap it with clay and the sun would dry it and essentially you could never tell that there was a well there, but the owner knew that it was there. And he praises her because she has kept her spring sealed, has kept her garden locked. And yet notice what he said in that last verse, that now she is a garden spring of fresh water and streams that are flowing from Lebanon. Obviously, understanding the area of the body that he's speaking, the implications there are obvious. Because he has gently and romantically spoken with her, because he has focused on her needs, not his own, not rushed to the kill, she is ready, both emotionally and physically, for their marriage to be consummated. And of course, he's ready. He was ready immediately. But notice her invitation. And as the wise husband, he waits for it. Verse 16, she says, Awake, O north wind, and come, wind of the south. Make my garden breathe out fragrance. Let its spices be wafted abroad. May my beloved come into his garden and eat its choice fruits. Then he says, I have come into my garden. My sister, my bride, I have gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. What she referred to as hers, she referred to as his. Her garden. And she invites him to come into it, and he does. And verse 1, eight times he calls her his own. My this, my that. Which is exactly what the New Testament says regarding the body of the husband is the wives, the body of the wives, wife is the husband's. Mutual. No more waiting. It is time to arouse and awaken love, which is what they have been doing. And then marriage is consummated. I think it's so interesting that the consummation of their marriage is described as coming into a garden. You think back to the Garden of Eden, and you had the very last statement made before uh, the account of sin coming into the world. You had the statement that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Of just innocent purity. And the clear implication there is that there was also sexual relations prior to the fall, or they were disobedient. Because God had given them a command to be fruitful and multiply. The command was made. And yet, before the fall, there was no conception. But they were naked and unashamed. I see that the Song of Solomon, in some sense, takes the sexual relationship of a marriage back to its pre-fall bliss. Back to where uh, God intended it to be. 
Which brings us to the very last statement made in verse 1. Who is making the statement, Eat friends, drink and imbibe deeply, O lovers? Well, obviously it's not them. They wouldn't talk to the, say that about themselves. Probably, I, I don't think it's somebody else sitting there watching, making the statement. I think it is the one with whom, uh, who was also the one in the garden who saw the first man and woman. I think it was the Lord that made the statement, Eat, friends, drink and literally become drunk, O lovers. As we've said before, and the scripture tells us that the only time in some sense that we are allowed to lose control or to go to excess to become drunk is in the physical relationship. The truth is that God sanctions marital intimacy for the purpose of pleasure. Uh, obviously, it's for the purpose of reproducing, obviously, the command in Genesis. 1 Corinthians tells us it's also for protection from immorality. But the Song of Solomon teaches us, as does Proverbs 5 and Genesis 18 also, that it's for pleasure. It's a gift from God for pleasure. In your bulletin, there's a, there's a couple of books that we have put down the information for. The first is by Ed and Gay Wheat. It's called Intended for Pleasure. If uh, you have any questions or whatnot, uh, nobody goes into it knowing it all, okay? And so it's very possible you could be married 10 years and still in some sense have a very naive ignorance about marriage, particularly about sexuality. Tenet for Pleasure is written from a Christian perspective, and it is the best book on the issue that I have ever seen. And I also put this one, His Needs, Her Needs, down there as well, because if there are ever any struggles in an area of sexuality, it indicates struggles in the area relationally, not one without the other. The women have got it right here. You've got to have both together for it to work. They don't have it compartmentalized like the man. A man, you can have a fight ten minutes, and then ten minutes later, he'd be fine to have intimacy. That's not so with a woman. And I think that, that is the way that God has designed it that we may keep our relationship with one another open. His needs and her needs goes down through and talks about the ten greatest needs of men, the ten greatest needs of women, actually five and five, and uh, how those needs can be met. The subtitle here is Building an Affair-Proof Marriage. So, even if you don't feel that your own marriage needs these, they'd be great resources for friends, because I know that we all know folks that... Uh, could benefit. But as we're going to see next week, the sexual struggles in marriage are almost always a reflection of relational struggles. We saw last week that it's built on the, the loving relationship, the selfless love, and you've got the friendship love, and at the very top of the triangle, not at the base, but at the top, is the physical relationship as well. So, if we can learn some lessons today from these honeymooners, there are questions to be asked and answered, first by the husband. How can I initiate romantic conversation? It's really to your benefit, guys, to do that. To ask that question and to creatively answer it. Also, how can I provide a freedom from distractions? For the ladies, really it's a lot simpler. <laughs> how can I provide a visual and physical incentive? You know, the visual and physical incentive doesn't come with 
floor-length pajama, flannel pajamas, curlers, and a mud mask on your face. Just as a hint, that's not the incentive we're talking about. Ask and answer these questions and watch the relationship become, the physical relationship become closer to the way God's designed it to be. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again today in some sense unashamed and in our souls bare before you. You see us as we are. We can't hide. We put the fig leaves over the most intimate parts of our hearts and you can look straight through us and see. I pray, Lord, for the couples who are here today who come in smiling and yet inside are hurting and desperate. Lord, I know they're here. I pray for your mercy that in their lives your grace might begin to be bestowed and that they would ask and answer these, que- these questions that your text teaches us. Such essential and yet basic issues. I pray for healing for these marriages and I pray that the physical relationship, which goes without saying they're relational as well, would become all that you would design it to be. And Lord, for those who have not yet gotten married or perhaps for the singles represented here as well, we reiterate, Lord, our prayer for purity and that like this woman was a virgin, locked might remain pure until that time that love may be aroused and awakened. Our culture battles against this, Lord. Help us to be pure, because we know only have our good in mind. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lord bless you.